you can't tell he's really been thumped. You know, now maybe under his shirt he had some red marks or bruises or something, but that's under his jersey. And he declined prosecution. We know that for a fact. And and it could be because Orlando Anderson was part of a group. They, you know, it's just the law of the street. Things happen and you'll address those later or do whatever, you know. He declined to prosecute and nobody asked him for his ID. And I fell once in Beverly Hills and it was raining. I don't drink. I don't take drugs. I just fell. And a policeman insisted on getting my identification for falling, not being involved in any kind of beatdown in any circumstances. So how can you explain how his ID wasn't taken? And how did that impact your investigation? I can't explain why his name wasn't taken. Lennon Oziesway reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Episode 3, Part 2. The investigation continued. 25 years ago, when I interviewed you, I don't remember much criticism of you or the investigation. Would that be correct in your perception? How aware were you that people were not thinking that you were doing enough for the investigation? And again, that's like a couple months after the investigation started. I would say in the very, very beginning it wasn't, but it was still fairly new. I mean, as while I was still going on, there was criticism coming from Athene Shakur and her attorney. What sort of criticism? Well, that we weren't doing anything, basically. You know, uh, I guess in a way I can... You're used to seeing it with family. You know, I mean, family, family members are the first ones to be in denial of a suicide. Of all the suicides I've done, you know, oh, you, 90 plus percent of the time, the family members are in denial that they could do such a thing. Even if you got a suicide letter, you got 100 witnesses to it, whatever, there's going to be denial. And that's understandable. But in this case, there's no denial this was a homicide. Oh, no, there's no denial it's a homicide. I mean, Afini Shakur knew it. I mean... The question about him being really dead, well, I guess a lot of people didn't believe his mom because she's the one that's even confirmed that he was dead and had had him cremated. So, but look where that's gone since then. What was the specific nature of Tupac's mother, Afini Shakur's criticism? I think it was just more that she didn't feel we were doing enough. Uh, her, her knowledge of what happened was limited. You know, she wasn't there at the time of the shooting. I think the biggest thing that she presented was the story that, you know, Tupac was planning on leaving Death Row Records. Well, she confirmed that to me. And that was just... That wasn't in face-to-face. -face. Those were in phone calls, but she did confirm that. Uh, she had no 
personal knowledge of it. She wasn't throwing out names. She didn't. She didn't do that. She just, you know, she didn't throw out names like a lot of other people did. She just, you know, she wanted someone to solve this. And I think that there was a lot of other things going on with her at the time because I know death row is a big t issue as far as the estate or other recordings that were stored up and stuff. I think that was a big thing that was going on with her at the time. But all uh, families want to get answers about their oh. loved ones. So how many times did you talk to her? And what else can you say about your discussions? I only talked to her twice. Once in Stone Mountain, Georgia. She was That's where she was living at the time. And that conversation was when she confirmed that Tupac was intending on leaving Death Row Records. Because I... I pointedly asked her that question and she said yes. She didn't give a whole lot. She didn't, uh, you know, I talked about his finances and stuff and she didn't, she even confirmed that he received money as he went along and he didn't own a whole lot. You know, she even confirmed that Tupac didn't, own anything, you know, of substance as far as material things in that, like cars and houses and such. Because Death Row, if he needed money, they'd give him cash. He'd go out and do his thing. If he needed a car, they'd give him a car. If he needed a place to crash, you know, they may have given him a nice place to live. But it wasn't that he owned three houses and two townhomes and five cars and all that. That wasn't the case. So I think the bigger thing that especially she felt were his was the recordings that hadn't been published or distributed yet. So she sounded like she was questioning death row in your conversations? Well, it was quite evident to me that Death Row was not high on her hit parade because on a second phone call where I talked to her and her attorney would have been present and he would be the probably the best one if they recorded it. I don't know if they recorded it or not. I almost, I would assume they did. I know that there was a question again about probably recordings and stuff that may have been his because I remember having information on a office or a warehouse or something like that in California where some things might have been, and I gave him the address. It was just something that I'd gotten through the investigation, and that would have been information I got from LAPD because I think it was in the Los An it was in the city of Los Angeles where this was at, and uh, I just remember saying, "Hey." there may be items of interest for them at this location. Now, what they did with it, I don't know. Were these two calls initiated by you or them? The first call was initiated by me to Stone Mountain, Georgia. And then I would say the second call was both of us because she didn't want to talk much. You know, the phone call wasn't real lengthy. 
but she didn't want to talk anymore without her attorney being present. So then that was arranged between us. So I guess, you know, depending on how you look at it, maybe she, you could say she initiated it in the sense of I'll be here or whatever. And then we ended up talking on the phone at a later time. And did you keep her in the loop in terms of what was happening in the case or? No, because there was nothing to keep her in the loop on, you know, that would be of substance. I mean, to sit here and throw out hearsay. I mean, if there would have been something where I could have said, we made an arrest, because I wouldn't tell her ahead of time we're going to arrest somebody. That's just not something we did, because why would you, you don't know what they're going to do. We may not arrest them for a couple of days and here you see in the newspaper the next day. Police tell a victim's mother that they're going to arrest someone. Well, you don't want that kind of stuff getting out. So you heard from Tupac's mother and perhaps another family member? She claimed to be the aunt. Again, there's no way I can confirm that, but she basically told me that me and Mike Franks, my partner, were the ones that murdered Tupac. Don't have any idea where it came from. She just, her feeling was we killed him. So I thought, well, another, there's an unhappy family member. And was it an earnest statement or was she saying you killed him because you hadn't solved the case or did she really think you went and killed him? No, this was an earnest statement. This wasn't like because the person hasn't been caught yet, we killed him. This was. I mean, because this is pretty soon after the fact, after he died. This wasn't like months later. It was within a week or two. Uh, I can't tell you when the Athene Shakur thing was. It was sometime later, I know. It would be somewhere in the case file. But You did not take home the t case file, I understand no, that. I don't have any case file. There's all the paperwork, and like I said, there's a couple of floppy disks with information in there, but all the cassette tapes, all the photographs, everything stayed there when I left. That's just, it wasn't the norm for detectives to be taking stuff home and making, making a copy of the entire case file for their own personal use. In terms of getting critiques from journalists about your investigation, when do you first recall any of that? Hmm. That would have probably been a, at the time, a future book author. I'm probably Kathy Scott. And I don't know that it was so much directed at me in particular as in the office in general. I just know that she was upset that we weren't talking to her. And, uh, and you know, and especially after that photograph came out because the photograph was directly linked to her. Not that she took it, but that she had it. And that opened the a whole can of worms and that because she wasn't willing to say anything about where she got it. And I guess I understand in the sense of it's part of the journalistic thing. You don't tell where your sources are, but 
you know what, once that comes up, because to me, that was a kind of a tacky thing, putting that picture out. That's not something, you know, there's no family member. There are no friends want to see their loved one like that. I know. So, some... I mean, I've, I've told, I've told murder victims, family members who wanted to see the body. I says, no, I used to try and convince them. You need to remember them when they were alive and happy and stuff like that. You don't want your last image of them being on a table in the coroner's office or laying there at the scene. Some would say that having that photograph, especially with so many conspiracies about, and we've just already talked about that previously, but with so many conspiracies that it was helpful in that sense to confirm the awful awful well i guess it depends because that photograph has also created conspiracy theories i mean how many times have you heard people say that's not him he wasn't that bloated he wasn't that full-figured or whatever and i i agree i never met the guy personally before he was shot I've seen a lot of pictures since. And in fact, the photograph that the guy took of him and Suge in the BMW before he got shot, he was a, he seemed like a small statured, lean guy. I mean, you look at the pictures, I think most of his times on stage, he's not wearing a shirt. So he's, he's a lean, muscular guy. That's not what you see in that photo. That's not what I saw at the hospital. I mean, he was bloated. He the guy has been, his body has been severely traumatized. And I believe, like I said, I never knew Doc Jordan, the, the guy who actually did the uh, autopsy. I didn't know he'd done an interview, but since you've sent that to me, you know, I think Doc Jordan explained it pretty well in there about what goes on. You know, he's the guy that should. He's the doctor. Gotcha. So just to go one more time, looking at some of the criticism, critics have said the investigation was sloppy, it floundered, that the investigators were indifferent, that you purposefully didn't want to solve the case because of political reasons and even racism. That's sort of the general omnibus of criticism. And you say? Well, being indifferent, I don't know how they what they base that on. Uh, there was no indifference. It's a murder. It doesn't matter to us who the victim is, what they stood for, or anything. It's a murder. It's our mission to hopefully identify the person that did it and take them to court and put them in prison for it. Simple as that. Uh, racism, I, I'm just totally baffled about that. I don't know why anybody would say, well, I guess I do know why people say it, because that's just the way people well, are. There are white investigators and a, a black victim, and statistically, the deaths of black people in general, especially black males, are less there, there's a less a lower solve rate. Well, and I can't give you statistics on that. I can tell you I had a 
bunch of black murder victims that we solved and put in prison. So that's all I can say is it has no bearing on it. As far as the white investigators, black murder victim, I think. Again, I can't give you numbers, but if you look across the country, how many times has that happened? And how many times have they been prosecuted? Have have there been times where that could have been a bearing? I, I'm not going to say it couldn't have been. I, I'm not there to know factually what happened. But in this case, Tupac Shakur being black, Tupac Shakur being, a, uh, Shakur being a rapper, Tupac Shakur, as I later learned, doing some sort of anti-police lyrics, had no bearing on anything. He's a murder victim. The mission is to put him in prison. The person who, him or her, whoever would have done the uh, killing. It, that doesn't have anything to do with it. As far as the case floundering, well, I'm sure there's plenty of cases that you could describe as floundering. You know, that's kind of a pretty gray word. If floundering means you have witnesses that don't want to cooperate or witnesses that are unable to tell you anything specifically or unable to identify anybody, then yeah, I guess the case did flounder. I, I wouldn't use that word. I would just say there's been some difficulties. And again, a newspaper yeah, it wouldn't, did. It, a newspaper used oh, that yeah, word to headline. I, I, guess what? First of all, if the newspaper put it out, newspapers are part of the entertainment industry. It's called sensationalism. You don't publish a story unless there's some sensationalism to it. So floundering is probably a good word to throw in there. Having gotten my degree in journalism, I'm not sure I'm going to agree with you on that statement. But. Well, and that's not going to be the first time that we've disagreed on something. So True that. So in, I do remember 25 years ago specifically asking you if it was an issue or what role it played with you in terms of knowing Tupac's background and how well, that impacted or would have impacted your investigation well and first had confrontations with police oh yeah and the night of the shooting i didn't even know the guy i didn't really know much about him at all it wasn't until the next day because now the media is going bananas on stuff and now they're putting out information about him because i never heard of the guy before that well i, I take that back Tupac Shakur, I knew from a historical figure. I didn't know there was a human being named Tupac Shakur. You knew him from history, the South American revolutionary? Tupac Amaru Shakur, yeah. He's a historical figure from South America. He was, some people call him a revolutionary, maybe. Some call him a patriot for a cause. It just depends on which side of the coin you're on. But as far but you as knew a, that. Oh, yeah. I've I've heard of that before. That's why I thought Tupac Shakur. But as things went on, I learned that a lot of these uh, rappers take on these different names. Well, he it's had like, that since he was one years old, though. Yeah. His mother gave just, it to him. Just like uh, I think Malcolm Greenidge had a different name. You know, in His... fact, as I, as I learned at Idi Amin, I thought, well, that's kind of a, you know, I don't know what his reason was for I think of Idi Amin and somebody in Uganda. 
Right. My you understanding know? is all the names for the outlaws were intentionally made to in some way reflect people who were pariahs. Oh, okay. Well, then that would that make sense. That was intentional. Castro that, that, was one. Yeah, that would make sense if I've never heard it Gaddafi, put that way. Gaddafi, yeah. well, Yaku yeah. Fula, who, who you interviewed, went by Yaki Gaddafi. So okay. it was intentional. Well, if you do that, if you look at it in that way, then that is understandable in that sense. I don't understand it in the big scheme of things, but they're the ones who are the entertainers and, you know, they don't understand what I'm doing. I don't understand what they're doing. So, so be it. You know, we had some persons of interest within a couple of days. All right. We may not have known their name yet, but we had some persons of interest right away. Uh, and we did have a name of one. And, uh, you know, so we're working on that. And thankfully, we got some people identified courtesy of Compton Police Department. We're talking Orlando Anderson, which we will have a whole episode right. devoted to him. Orlando he was a Anderson was the guy on the MGM video. And backing uh, up for just a moment there, and I know I was the first person to get that video to be broadcast. How did you get that video? Did M the MGM Grand come to you, or did you go to the MGM Grand? How did you become aware of it? I want to say that they got a hold of us. I, I, I just off the top of my head, I don't remember specifically how it happened. I just know that obviously this shooting was a big deal. And I remember having to go to security to get the videotape and well, we viewed it, got a copy because I know they kept one. It's, it's, that's just the, you know, casinos have their own recordings of stuff. And so we got that video within a day or two. And obviously that shed some light on things that we had something to go on between the guy and I'll say Orlando Anderson, the guy in the football jersey being on the floor getting kicked and punched. And then later on in the same video where Orlando Sanderson is upright in his football jersey being talked to by police and security. And then there was a guy that came into the frame later on. At, well, I'm stopping you there for a moment, and I want to know about the guy who came into the frame. I've heard reports how bloody Orlando Anderson was after the beatdown, that he went to the hospital. In that MGM Grand video, he doesn't look worse for wear. He wasn't bloodied. The, the impression you get is that, yeah, you know, the whole story, well, the video says it all. Tupac comes in, he does something, takes a swing at him. I don't know that he does a real good hard punch. But Orlando ends up down because the whole herd comes in behind him throwing kicks. And what Orlando's doing in that video is difficult to see because of all the other obstacles that are in the video. I think a bench or something was there. Like an artificial but, tree or something. Yeah, I mean, 
Orlando Anderson, as we know, had been around the block, so he knows a little bit about fighting, probably. And anybody that knows anything, if you're getting dogpiled on, you're going to try to protect yourself, which means you're probably going to curl up, put your arms over this and that. So hopefully you're going to be deflecting some of those blows. Uh, in particular, your head and your face. You know, your body, your, it's better if your body takes a little abuse than your head and your face because that's where you go unconscious. And his face didn't look bad at all. The, the whole he looked alert? Going to the hospital thing, I there was not nothing to show that he did, you know, other than what people say happened. Everybody that says something hasn't produced anything to show that happened. Uh, and again, you look at the video. You can't tell he's really been thumped. You know, now maybe under his shirt he had some red marks or bruises or something, but that's under his jersey. And he declined prosecution. We know that for a fact. And, and it could be because Orlando Anderson was part of a group. They, you know, it's just the law of the street. Things happen and you'll address those later or do whatever, you know. He declined to prosecute and nobody asked him for his ID. And I fell once in Beverly Hills and it was raining. I don't drink. I don't take drugs. I just fell. And a policeman insisted on getting my identification for falling, not being involved in any kind of beatdown in any circumstances. So how can you explain how his ID wasn't taken and how did that impact your investigation? I can't explain why his name wasn't taken. By Las Vegas PD or hotel security? By anybody, really. I mean, now I learned a long time ago in my training and over the course of my experience, if you're going to have contact with someone, you want to know who you're talking to. Even if it's an insignificant conversation, it's always good to know who they're talking to. They know who you are. We got a name tag on us. They know we're a policeman. I can't explain why his name wasn't taken. If it was taken, no one ever gave it to us. So, which I don't understand why they wouldn't do that either. So, yeah, I, I can't answer that. I don't, I have no idea why it wasn't. I'd have thought the MGM would have had it because of, that's just the way it was with security. Now, because it was fight night, does that have any bearing on it? I, I don't know. How so? What, what, why would that have had any bearing? Well, I'm just wondering, were they that busy? Well, you yeah. see at least one security guard just standing there. Yeah. It seemed like there were more than one, so they may have been busy, but they were present. And I can't answer for what that security guard was thinking. If, if his thought process is, if the police don't care, I don't care, I, I don't know. You know, I would it have been helpful to have that name immediately? Absolutely. It wouldn't have changed anything in the big scheme of things right away, other than it would. You don't would, think so? Well, it would have helped identify a person, all right? And you go, could have tracked his hotel, well, potentially. You could have. Possibly. You got to realize 
in a perfect world, you can track all these things. In the real world, it doesn't quite work that way. There's TV CSI. When that show came out, I thought, boy, I wish we could do or get the kind of information that TV show produces. So, you know, yeah, maybe we could have. I, you know, I guess I'm not going to belittle that point that, yeah, maybe we could have, but you just don't go out and find out for sure where someone's at. With all the surveillance in Las Vegas? Now, surveillance in Las Vegas, you got to realize 96 is probably a little different than after 9-11. You had, so, you had cameras in the casinos. All right. right. First of all, you need to know the casino. Second of all, you need to know for sure who you're looking for. And ideally, you'd like to know what area because remember, casinos are very large. I can't tell you how many cameras are in each casino, but there are a lot. But Orlando... And have you ever been into a security office and seen all the monitors up there? I think I actually have. There's... Yeah. And how many people were in there watching those monitors that you saw? That I... One or two? That I can't tell you I remember, <laughs> but I... Yeah. Imagine 20... Just imagine one person looking at 20 camera feeds, and are they all... Are they all right on it? Are the cameras moving? Because if you look at some of the camera feed from the videotape. It does move. It does track. In particular, particularly after the beatdown, when Tupac and the crowd are leaving the casino, the camera is following them. Well, that isn't because the camera just got its own brain and decided to follow them. That's because there's somebody up there following him. So they see something that's drawn their attention to it. Orlando Anderson walking in a casino. I've, I've worked murder cases where we had victims that we, they said, stayed at a particular hotel. Now that was, they told us that. I went in, I could confirm that. We looked at videotape. We could never find someone Depending on what you're talking about, there's a lot of people in a casino. Right. But he was distinctively dressed in terms of... Yes. He was distinctively dressed at the time of the beatdown. Was he distinctively dressed like that the entire time he was in Las Vegas? I don't know. I would, I would hope he brought more than one shirt, but maybe not. <laughs> the thinking might be, though, when he exits the MGM Grand... Wearing that distinctive clothing, he could be tracked. Yeah, if the camera got him. Because imagine this, the MGM Grand's the one who provided the video. They obviously thought it was something... Significant. The beatdown. There's a person, again, locked in on that. That isn't the camera just doing it itself. And then the video of him talking to the police and security. There's a person who's got the camera on him. If, if they recorded him moving through the casino, that was never provided. Now, could there be one? I don't, I, I guess there could. No one ever provided it. I have no reason to doubt that if there was one that the MGM would have provided it because they provided these videos. Or there's there's no 
there's no valid reason for them not doing it because there's nothing where they're saying they did anything wrong. They aren't the one that coaxed Tupac and the crowd to go beat up on Orlando or anything like that. So, All right. Looking at some of the other issues, other areas that you would be investigating, there is a persistent story about an exchange of gunfire between the white caddy and somebody from the death row entourage, more specifically Alton McDonald, a.k.a. Buntry, shooting into the white Cadillac with the assailant. And reportedly, there's even a police report stating that. What is your knowledge about anybody from death row following the white caddy and shooting? First of all, nobody at the scene that I talked to that night, that morning, whatever you want to call it, said such a thing. All right. The only witness accounts describe one set of shots fired, the shooting into the car. There was not a second set of shots reported by anybody. As far as... A police report. Well, if the police report is that FI, the field interview card you're talking about, that's the first time I've seen that. I'll, I'll tell you right here now, that's our card, our field interview card form. And that is the first time I've ever seen that document. So if if that came from there, my question would be, was that passed to us? Did it go to police records and it never got forwarded? Or I don't know. I'm just saying that's the first time I've seen that. The interesting part of that card when you showed it to me was that there's three different people's handwriting on it. That's there. not the norm. Well, normally one person fills out the card on what's going on. All right. There should, I didn't see the whole card because I don't know if you want to call it redacted or they, they intentionally took the photograph the way they did or what. There should be a date time and location of the interview on there and who took the who filled out the card i didn't see that i haven't seen the the entire card so it, that would be interesting to see but the first thing i noticed was there's three different people's handwriting on there and then the person's name alton mcdonald is the name that was written on there it was written in red ink in 31 years as a policeman, I never saw an FI card filled out where the name was in red ink. It was in, traditionally you used black ink, you were allowed to use blue ink. So, and... What does that mean? I don't know how about police, I don't know if policemen today do it, but in my day, we didn't run around with multicolored ink pens on the job. So if you're out in the field interviewing something, where are you going to pull out a red ink pen to fill this thing out? So my first concern is there's three different handwritings on there, and then that name's in red ink. Well, I don't, I'm not going to go into any other speculation other than that it's, it raises questions. And you say three different types of handwriting. None of them were yours? No. My, my handwriting is not on that card. I can't tell you who everybody else is, but... And not your partner. I mean, it's quite... 
I can't, I don't remember Mike's handwriting. It's been 20 years. But he, I mean, I guess if, if I could go look at some documents, I might be able to say something, but I, I don't believe so, but I can't say it, there isn't because I don't but remember. But normally speaking, it would have been you who should have, I mean, you tell me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you're on the scene, would you not have been the person most likely to have filled that out because you were there the day of the shooting? The night of the if early that FI card, of? if that FI card was completed at the scene, one I would hope they'd have passed it to me, whoever filled it out, because I didn't fill it out. But the again, the big question is there shouldn't be three different hand, people's handwriting on there. That that in the red ink, just those are the real baffling things to me. And like I said, I'd love to see the part where it says date, time, and location. And the name of the person taking the filling out the card that, you know, then, you'd know, one who filled it, or at least who one of the handwriting are, <laughs> but don't recognize. And as far as, you know, no shooting took place between somebody from death row and the Cadillac. Not from people that were there that night at the at the scene. I know that later on, that story came out persistently and pro multiple times. And I can say, well, if it did, you almost think it would have happened a ways away because nobody heard any other gunfire, which is kind of strange. I mean especially when you're talking down there. Now, in that particular intersection, it's not like you have high-rise buildings on all four corners or anything. In fact, from what I remember that night, the maximum Maxim Hotel Casino's uh, garage would have been on the north side of the street. I think the south side of the street was vacant at the time. It was a, a open I don't know if it was a dirt lot or a parking lot, but it was, an it was open because I think the, the marina, was it the marina? Because down at the corner of Flamingo and the Boulevard, you'd had the Barbary Coast on the northeast corner, Caesars Palace on the northwest corner. There's a hotel that used to be the MGM on the southeast corner, but I think it was the marina then. I just don't remember. And then on the southwest corner, gosh, I don't remember. But you had ear, <laughs> you had not eyewitnesses, but ear witnesses who did not hear anything other than the initial. Correct. Correct. The only thing the eyewitnesses say is the shooting into the BMW. The only thing that ear, when you say ear witness, people who overheard things, You've only got witnesses saying they overheard that gunfire. Also, want to follow up on something I'd never heard before, that there was a visitor's log at the gated community where Suge Knight lived. There were off-duty police that night. They saw the entourage after they left the MGM Grand and the Luxor going to Suge Knight's home, a very nice neighborhood, and in this gated community, there were these off-duty cops, and one of the cops said that he saw 
a light colored Cadillac at the end of this entourage going to Suge Knight's home. I remember, I think he'd actually called it a cream colored Cadillac, if I, if I remember yes, right. Yes, that's what I, I understand. There, there was a, there was a visitor's log, I guess you'll call it, there at the entrance where they would document the vehicle and nick and names. I think, I think there were a lot of nicknames neck, on neck that bone, piece of paper. K-Dog, Hen-Dog, Trey. Yeah, yeah. And some of those names I kind of recall from other parts of the investigation, but I remember that the off-duty officers were there because somebody in the community, the way I understood it, had contacted the department and wanted some off-duty officers to work there because I think they expected a lot of people to be down there, so they just wanted it there to be sure. So I know there was two or three officers there, and one of the officers, at least one of them did an officer's report, as far as that, because I remember speaking to them, at least one of them, and I remember the report being done. And that's not, there was nothing, it isn't the way I understood it. They weren't moonlighting, because you aren't supposed to be moonlighting in security at, with the department. I'm not saying it never happened. I'm just saying you aren't supposed to be. And in this case, I think this was a sanctioned department off-duty gig because there was a sanctioned off-duty gig at the Club 662. And again, the Club 662 is where Tupac and Suge were heading before Tupac was shot. Yeah, that's where their ultimate destination was supposed to be to a, a benefit. There have also been these rumblings that the four young women who were following Suge and Tupac to Club 662 may have been a ruse, may have been there intentionally to somehow aid in the shooting. Your take on that? If they were, they're pretty good liars and actresses. Uh, it, was, it was my opinion from talking to them, their demeanor and such. I think they were just four girls out in Las Vegas to have a good time because they were dressed to go out that night. I remember they were, if I recall right, pretty provocatively dressed. And their their story, their details were consistent to me as to what they were doing. They were out to have a good time. They happened to see Tupac. Well, if they know Tupac and all, they're gonna wanna talk and you know flirt, whatever. And I believe there was something about them being invited to go to the club or something like that. And uh, I, I truly believe they were in the wrong place at the wrong time in, in, in the sense of they didn't have any intention of having their night messed up like that. When I interviewed you 25 years ago, you said pretty definitively that you did not believe that Suge Knight set up the shooting. Do you still believe that? I. To this day, I don't buy into it unless someone can produce something otherwise. I haven't seen anything. You know, there's been a lot of hearsay again. You know, that hearsay came out real quick. Suge Knight wanted Tupac killed because maybe he got wind that Tupac was wanting to leave death row or something. 
I just don't buy into the story. I'm thinking as many shots were fired. And you got to realize what, 13, 14 shots, something like that. Of those 14 shots, what, three, three hit Tupac? Three or four? There's three or four. You know, I don't remember specifically. Doc Jordan's re Doc Jordan would know from what his examination was. Uh, should got an injury to his head, which whether that was a bullet fragment or a piece of glass, I don't know. If that were a bullet fired from a gun. As he said. You know, unless Suge Knight's got one hard noggin, you'd have thought it had done more than scratch him on the forehead because it didn't penetrate the skull, didn't go in his brain. There was no projectile between the scalp and the skull. Uh, it appeared to be he'd been hit by something. And again, whether it's bullet fragment or glass, I mean, he was hit. He was injured. I mean, the officers that night said he was profusely, bleeding, you know, and, and head injuries do bleed. If you've ever had a head injury, you know, sometimes it takes a while for it to stop bleeding. So I'm not denying that happened, but I don't, I'm just not sold on that story. And again, everybody's got their ideas and well, that's their, that's their views. I'm not here to change it. I'm just telling what I saw and what happened that night. Because one of the reasons I asked him when I interviewed him in LA County Jail about that 25, well, 24 years ago, but that there's going to be a new wave of that belief 25 years later, there's reporting again that he was behind it. Well, you know, when you have a case that has been open like this for so long, it, it does open that door for all kinds of theories to come out. You know, look at the conspiracy theories that are coming out of this, that have been coming out forever and ever, just about whether Tupac's dead or alive. Now you're talking about a shooting. Uh, I just don't buy into it. Uh, if you want to believe the recent, well, I say recent confession, the confession that has been published since uh, by California, well, he confirms that, that he wasn't the target, per se. This was a supposedly a retaliatory deal. That's the way I understood it. So you're so, firm. You're firm know. in your convictions based on what you I, saw. I am. What you investigated. Yeah, I am. I am firm on that. I can tell you that other people that have been involved in the investigation are of the same mind. So I, I don't know any law enforcement investigator from our department that is, has that on their thoughts. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody in another agency. I mean, there's so many people that have got their views on stuff. Maybe in California. One, I mean, I, I just want to go through a, a few other things about the investigation, including why didn't you tap into the gang investigators in Las Vegas? Because that, that's been another criticism. 
Well, the gang investors in Las Vegas were contacted. I said, Did you exploit them? Was there any, there there was there was there anything of substantial value obtained from them? No. There was nothing that was that beneficial because there was nothing to indicate this was a planned deal as in weeks in planning or days in planning or anything like that. But it's it's the investigation, it's it's quite evident that this was a spontaneous event. There may have been things that happened that night that, you know, precipitated it, but it there was nothing to indicate this was something that was pre-planned or the minds that be had a meeting and decided they were going to do but this. But you don't think it would have been helpful to really delve into what they had to offer because it, as it probably appeared early on, this was gang somehow related. They didn't. I just said they didn't have anything. There was nothing that the Las Vegas gang unit had to provide us that was beneficial to this shooting. There wasn't. Did If there is, it's going to be news to me. So but I understood that they or some other parts of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department were doing investigations independently into the case? Okay, now that's a different story. That wasn't anything leading up to this shooting. Scuttlebutt was that somebody, whether it was on their own or whatever from the gang unit, was snooping around, gathering information, something like that, maybe looking into it from their perspective. It wasn't that the gang unit as a whole was conducting a big, drawn-out investigation. Was that helpful for this person to go out on their own? There was nothing There was nothing that was ever shared with us that was helpful. But if there was something, If there was something that was garnered by that person and kept in secret, then there's a pro- there is a problem. And they could get in trouble for that. They, they would have gotten in trouble for it. So there was nothing substantial that came out of that. What were your, were your thoughts when somebody's freelancing like that? Well, I don't like it. You know, I mean, it does no good to have multiple investigations going multiple directions. You know, if you have information to share, you do it. Hey, we did that with Compton when they came over after Tupac died. We shared information with them. All right. To, uh, Compton shared information with us when they came over. I says, I have, that was towards a, at the time it appeared to be towards an individual, you know, uh, final closure, so to speak, to determine who did this. As things went on, different, you know, we learned that different people were doing different things. And well, I can't control what other agencies or other people are doing. You know, you hope, you hope that they will share if if they have some information. But as it turns out, we've learned that maybe they weren't all sharing. (laughs) Well, to throw out some more follow-ups in terms of the investigation. Did you ever find out if there was life insurance on Tupac Shakur? There was nothing to indicate that, and 
I know everybody says, did you do this and do this, do that, you know, life insurance, bank accounts or stuff. You got to realize we make use of other law enforcement agencies to garner information. Okay. Because sometimes it's easier to get information through them because there are some law enforcement agencies that are able to get things that we can't, at least Like quicker. the feds. Yeah. Well, yeah, without throwing out any particular agency, years, you can always get something quicker through the federal system than you can through state or local. Because the feds, one, have unlimited resources. They may not necessarily admit it, but why, why do you always see things where people are going to the feds for help on stuff? Because they've got the manpower, they've got the money. And yeah, I've used federal agencies to track down other murders, to get documents, to research bank accounts, stuff like that, because a lot of times, depending, especially if you're talking about things outside of Nevada, you know, because now we're talking a Nevada agency trying to get information from a business in another state. You know, you don't know what the cooperation is between agencies there. In a lot of places, even then, we're starting to require subpoenas for stuff, which, one, you got to get permission from a judge to get a subpoena, which normally you can, but the feds have other ways of doing things. Did you ever determine if the feds were investigating death row records and potentially had surveillance on Tupac and Suge Knight that night? There was nothing to indicate that the feds had surveillance going on that night. I know that during our multiple trips to California, we learned the FBI, the way it was put to us, they'd had an investigation going on with about death row for about three years. And no arrests or... But there was, there was no information shared with us that could be used. And guess what? They aren't going to share... They aren't going to jeopardize their case if, you know, it just depends on the circumstances. Well, let me put it this way. If the FBI had been surveilling Tupac and Suge September 7th, 1996, would you necessarily have had access to that? You'd have to ask them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that they withheld anything. Again, I can go into other murder cases where I I know the feds were doing certain things. I can never personally say they were sitting there watching anything, but that's not anything that they're going to share because that's their investigation. Unless, unless what's going to benefit us is going to benefit them. In other words, the answer is possibly. Oh, I... I would be silly to say absolutely not. Yeah. Could there have been? I guess there could have been. I would hope not if they shared it. You know, it would have been nice if they had shared it. So I'm not going to sit here and say I know they did, but then I can't say they didn't. How much did you look into Tupac's past in terms of the shooting in New York at the recording studio? 
we we got information on that. We got some reports. We got some some uh, booking photos or mug shots of the guys that I think were arrested on that. I I can't tell you names or anything. But you didn't. Everything would be in the it's it'd be in the case file. So we'd have information on that. Uh, there was some the thing about him getting arrested and being in prison on some sex crime. Uh, because we did get a copy of a handwritten written contract that death row did with him to get him out of prison. And then uh, I know the scuttle about a shooting in Atlanta. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of particulars on that, but I, we knew with about that. With two policemen? Yeah, I know it was supposedly involving two policemen. I don't know all the particulars. There was, I don't know that there was all. I don't know how much was actually documented or investigated on that. I know that that was something that happened, but that we didn't have a whole lot of hard information. Did you think that. it was relevant? My understanding of that incident from what I've read, because you always hear these stories sort of off in the distance, but my understanding, there were two off-duty police officers. Tupac, according to reports, came upon them beating up a black man he got his gun out and there was some fire exchange and as i said over the years i always wondered why wasn't he prosecuted for that and from what i've read it's because the off-duty policemen were drunk and the off-duty policemen were using firearms or at least one firearm that was should have been in evidence and i don't know all the intimate details about that i've heard bits and pieces of that you're, you're kind of refreshing my memory on some of that but there's parts of that i didn't know i just know that when we looked into it we didn't see any direct relation with that incident and what happened in las vegas also in atlanta the story i don't know how much you got into it with jake robles because that is that was a friend of Suge Knight, and he was killed in Atlanta. And Death Row, and I heard this directly from a source within Death Row, that was something that really was very upsetting to Suge Knight, and he always believed that P. Diddy, P. Diddy Puff Daddy, Sean Puffy Combs, whatever you'd like to say, was behind it. And many have said and this death row source confirmed that that was really the beginning of the beef between death row records suge knight and sean puffy combs you know and i'm trying to remember there was an event and maybe it was this one i know there was something to do with suge knight the robles name just doesn't ring a bell right now but i remember something where suge knight was involved uh, as far as the beginning of the division between Death Row and P. Diddy, uh, I don't know because I remember when Tupac got shot in New York from what I gathered from that investigation was that maybe Tupac suspected that Biggie yes. or P. Diddy or someone on that side yes. had some involvement in his getting shot. 
And I know there was other things going on. I don't remember was at that time where, you know, I'm going off what I remember. I just remember the deal about Tupac supposedly having an affair with Biggie's wife, Faith Evans, whether that was then or not. It there was, was after that. All kinds of information. Well, yeah, there was all kinds of information coming out. And how closely did you follow that? Because after that shooting, Tupac did believe that Biggie was behind it. Bad Boy Records was behind it. Biggie comes out with a song, Who Shot Ya? He says it has nothing at all to do with Tupac getting shot. After that? There was, there was nothing that came out of any of that that directly interlinked all this stuff. I mean, yeah, you're gonna, the rumors came out right away. You were getting tips. Absolutely. The, the East Coast, West Coast. Which you never believed. And all but that. As you told me 25 years ago, you never really bought into that. No, because there was never any evidence. Again, you have some here. There wasn't a lot of hearsay like we got related to our shooting, but you had all kinds of rumors, but there was never any hard information. There were no people that came out and said with absolute certainty this was going on. Everything was supposition. You know, people said, well, I heard this, I heard that, this happened, that happened. They can say what they want. The point is, was that the reason for it? And there was nobody that said well, that. I, I can say that I heard directly from Death Row's inner circle that the death of Jake Robles was quite an inciting incident. Okay, and were they there for the it? The shooting? Or yeah. for the aftermath. Are, are they here? Are are they hearing this from somebody else within death row? That's what my question is. They're hearing it from how the many top. times is it? Okay, how many times has it been filtered down? Is my question. I would say, not like on Instagram, no filter. Okay, and did Suge Knight say that? No. But somebody okay. well, very high was it. I. And, and I get you. I, I do. I do understand what you're saying, and that's something you may want to consider. But the point is, the the person that they're claiming felt this way is not saying it. So he can say all he wants, but if he says one thing, and the source of where this problem's supposed to be says otherwise, well, now we got a problem. Now I brought up who shot you, the record, and then there was also hit him up from Tupac and the Outlaws. In fact, Idi Amin is in that video, Yafu Fula in that video, and the song which some people think is the greatest diss record of all time, Tupac does talk about sleeping with Faith Evans, who I must say I later interviewed and she says no. She goes on into some other detail later in a book she's written, but she said no. Nothing did happen between them, but it is in this song, Hit Em Up. How closely did you look at that, at a song? Because you could say in covering maybe another case that somebody said, oh, I heard this man say, I slept with your wife. This is a song which now has more than... 
400 million views on YouTube that says some very disparaging things, including, I hope you die slow, about Biggie. Uh, and, you know, he wrote a song, and he says that in the song. Does that mean it happened? If I wrote a song that says, I shot the sheriff, does that mean I shot the sheriff? In terms, if you didn't like the sheriff, and you had beef with the sheriff, and then you put that in a record, isn't that a clue? Does that, and this was Tupac about does, Biggie. Yeah, I, un I understand what you're saying. My point is, from the law enforcement perspective, I can say all I want about I shot the sheriff. If the sheriff ain't shot or you can prove it, it don't matter. What we, we already know that even you've brought up through Biggie's mother that certain types of music is what people want. That's what makes the money. And, you know, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but if Faith Evans says it didn't happen, and she's, she's kind of intertwined in this deal, now the question is, who do you want to believe and how do you prove it? And I'll also say that somebody high level at Death Row Records also confirmed what Tupac said. Okay, so they visibly saw this happen. That's what, what they said to me, in not so many words. Correct. Okay. Was there was it ever proven? That, I'm I'm just asking because whatever happened between Tupac and Faith Evans, if it did happen, well, yeah, I, I can see that causing some friction, but there was never again any first hand information directly linking that described event as to being what caused this. And in just wrapping up with a few other names, the investigation, Yaki Gaddafi, a.k.a. Yafufula, as you knew him, to be clear, he said, from my reading of the statement you took of him initially, he could identify the driver in the white Cadillac, not the shooter. He saw a black, a dark black arm, but the driver was light skinned. Am I right on this? Did he say he could or he thought he could? I think I thought he. I thought think he, he could. said he. Correct. Yeah, I think it wasn't an absolute. But it's the driver, it was, not the shooter. But it, but it, but it, but it was the driver. I remember him because from what I remember, Yafufula, he was a lighter skinned black male. He described the driver as being lighter skinned. In fact, I think he used the term bitch face. I remember and you telling me that 25 his, years ago. His, his, his description of the arm is a dark skinned arm, which more or less is consistent with the others. But I think he says in his statement that the arm came out the driver's door window, if I remember right. Him and, oh gosh. There was another person in the car that said it. I don't think it was Frank. It might have been Malcolm Greenidge. I Those are the only three statements I, I put, saw. And I have to look it up because I yeah, literally put all the witness statements on a spreadsheet because they weren't all exactly the same. I remember you doing that. I know that there were, I thought there were two people in the car that Frank was in. With It would have been Frank Alexander, Malcolm Greenidge, 
Katari Cox and Yapu Fula. Yapu Fula. Yaki Kadapi. <laughs> I got too many names going here. They were in the car directly behind Suge and Tupac. I remember off the top of my head, two witnesses in that car saying the arm came with the gun came out of the driver's window. I I know you didn't have a statement from Katari Cox, but I thought I talked to him. Yeah, I couldn't find one. I yeah, I you know we're talking a long time. Twenty five years. If he if he were there, I'd have talked to him. Now maybe he didn't concede to do a taped interview. I don't know. If there's not an interview in there, maybe that's what happened. And and Katari Cox would be the person to talk to about that. Uh, I do remember that whatever he said, he couldn't identify anybody. Now, if that was just us talking face-to-face or what, I don't know. But somewhere, somehow, Katari Cox, because we had his name, so but he couldn't identify anybody and it wasn't his his aka was castro but re- yeah and i didn't gather it from the interviews and subsequently even it kind of it's proven that none of them were withholding information as far as identifying anybody now the part about what happened at the MGM? Well, we know there was at least one person that was there for the MGM fight because he's in the right, video. And we're going to get to him. I, okay. I believe, like Malcolm, I don't think Malcolm was at the MGM. That's my understanding. So he w- uh, yeah, Not so, at the fight. Whether he was at the MGM right. is not clear to me from what I've read because there's some accounts that yeah. some of the outlaws met up with Tupac after the fight at the MGM. Right. So it's not. And I don't, I don't gather that everybody that was in that car behind Tupac and Shug were together the whole night. Got you. So I want to just make it perfectly clear, though, that Yafufula, Yaki Kadapi said that he could identify the driver, not the shooter. and in terms of description, one was light-skinned, or potentially identified. One was light-skinned, and one the shooter, the gun came out of an arm that was dark-skinned. Correct. And I'm pretty sure Yafu Fula said the arm came out the driver's door window. And you were not able to get a sketch artist there that night, correct? Nobody said, one, that they could do that. Two, no, we didn't have a sketch. We've never had a sketch artist at the scene of a shooting do a composite. Or call call. I don't know many. I don't know. I don't know of many agencies that do that just like that. That's something that may be done after the fact, maybe a day or two later, but... uh, Maybe there are some agencies that have that kind of resources, but I've not heard of many. So no, there was not a composite made that night of anybody. Uh, I can tell you that it wasn't long after that we had a light-skinned black male, I guess you could call bitch-faced, you know. Uh, which took me a minute to understand, how, which means soft. Yeah, depending on yeah, depending on how you interpret it, 
we had a person identified that we were interested in. And? Well, and there was a question of whether he'd been operating a white Cadillac. And I just know that we had a possible location for the person and a possible phone number. And we submitted paperwork, get a court order for what's called a pin register. Now, most people understand wiretaps or T3s and such as that's something where they put a recording, you, you know, they put a device in a telephone or in the house so that you can overhear what's being said. Now, pin register in this case would give us phone phone numbers of, that have been calling this person or this person's been reaching out to. And we we did do paperwork to get a pin register. We got it signed off. We were getting it. Uh, we had to go record it because everything gets recorded. You know, it's still an official document. The judge is signing it. And it wasn't set up yet because we just got the thing. We just got the paper. And damn it if the next day it shows up in the media. Uh, I have not seen, I don't know if the story, a copy of the news clipping is in the case file. Because like we've talked before, we used to keep anything that was published in a newspaper magazine that we saw while we were investigating anything, we would cut it out and put it in the case file because you never know what information is going to come in there that may be helpful, be it helping to prove things or, disprove. or to disprove things. So I don't remember if we clipped that. It, I would have thought we would have, so it might be in the case file. I just remember it because, and I talked to Mike Franks, my partner, about it, and he remembers it clearly, too. You couldn't have just gone to the phone company to get the phone records to see who this person is? Well, no, no, you have to. No, this is a deal where you have to do it to get permission to, to kind of record it. It doesn't do anything. Record any, you, it? You can get meaning as recorded, contemporaneously? Meaning as they're being done. Yeah, as they're being done. As they're dialed. You know, uh, it's one thing to go get a phone record. You know, you can subpoena records from the court. Well, you can subpoena records from the phone company. After the fact. But in this particular case, there was a question as to, I don't remember if it was a cell phone. I thought it was a landline. I don't remember. Again, the document would say. But this thing hit the press. We went over to the location of interest, and that was vacated. So the intent of that pin register was dead before it even got out the gate. Now, my understanding that Yafufula Yaki Kadapi was a childhood friend of Tupac. And in fact, these 25 years later, I've seen some photos of the two of them very young. And I didn't realize their relationship went back that far when talking to you 25 mm -hmm. years ago about him. Because I remember when we talked 25 years ago, he seemed to be the most promising witness. Is that a fair way to characterize my how you felt? I would say of the four people in that car, he's the only guy that says he thought he could identify someone. I mean, 
Yeah, he's saying thought, but guess what? He's still saying he thinks he might be able to identify him. Frank Alexander, Malcolm Greenidge, and Kentari Cox did not say anything to that All effect. in the same car. Even, even, even later on when Frank Alexander had his issue with death row, he never said that. He just, he couldn't identify And we're going to get to Frank Alexander in a moment. But talking about Yafufula, Yaki Gaddafi, I found this passage in a web online story. Yafu was the only one that initially came forward claiming that he could identify the gunman from a photo lineup. And I know from your interpretation, that's already incorrect because you're saying he thought he could, and this is saying he could. Well, and that says he could identify the gunman. He never said that. In fact, you've got a copy of his interview and nowhere in that interview, people, they're putting words into Yafu Fula's mouth is what they're doing. They aren't putting it into my mouth. I'm going by his statement. And that, that is a, an incorrect statement. And wait, there's more. However, okay. police sent him home after they interviewed him for a short time. I know you interviewed him for five minutes, roughly, but did you? Yeah, that's short but time, did you send yeah. him home? I didn't send him anywhere. I released him. Where he wanted to go after that, it's his business. The criticism has been, why did you not follow up with him? Well, and my answer to the criticism is we tried to. How so? Now, multiple times, death row records, and I'm pretty sure in specific David Kenner, because Kevin Manning was our sergeant at the time. So Kevin would do a lot of things like this while we were doing other parts of the investigation. There like were this meaning? Making phone calls that maybe we're doing something else. It's easy to be sitting at the desk and make a phone call. And there were times when we would be out on a homicide scene and Kevin would be the one drawing up the search warrant because we're busy doing this. So the sergeant gathers the information to do the search warrant. That's that's just the way it works. You know, you try to help each other. This isn't a, this isn't a one person show. So several attempts were made to try and get a hold of Yafu Fula because we thought Yafu Fula was in California. We're figuring death row, he's over there, or whatever. The answer was they would get. Yafu Fula provide him to do this photo lineup. And it kept not transpiring, not transpiring. And then the next thing we see is he gets killed back in New Jersey. So, yes, there were multiple attempts to try and get a hold of him to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and debate with whoever this person is. They've got their opinion of there how what that means by following yeah, up. There, yeah, it's, more it's, than their, one... it's their opinion of what a follow-up or lack of follow-up is. I says, you know, follow-up can only be done if someone's willing to talk to you or you're able to get in touch with them to to uh, talk to them. And because believe you me, at that time, 
I know we had at least one photo lineup to show them related to that driver. You did. Well, we had that early on. And that was just one of many photos. And the lineups. only issue you're saying is because he wouldn't, or you weren't able to get to him? We weren't able to talk to him. We tried. We would call, because one, we don't have a place to contact him. I don't remember if there was a phone number on that uh, interview or not, because a lot of times we'll put an address and a phone number on there. I know that a phone number on there, we'd have attempted to contact someone at that number, and that was that didn't happen. A criticism I've seen is, why didn't you compel him to talk to you? Because we couldn't find him. That's how do you come one? He's already talked to us, so that it's kind of a moot. Well, point. to follow up with a photo. As far line. as the f because we couldn't find him, we never were able to get a hold of him. How do you compel someone if you can't have them in front of you? One, and how do you compel someone to do something? He's not a suspect. There was absolutely nothing to indicate that he was part of this shooting, other than he was in the car behind him, because there was nothing to indicate any of those guys expected it. That's why I think they didn't really see a lot. This this thing came out of the blue. Uh, and you can get a hold of someone and say, we want you to tell us what happened to this. How do you compel them? What, what I'll, I'll ask the critic, I says, what do they mean by compelling? Because if you tell, you ask me, compel him, does that mean you want me to beat him up? Well, we don't do legally, that. Legally, what were your Did, options? Not, not to put your hands on him, but legally, what were your options? Once you had the photo lineup, what could you do? Our legal, legally, I, we were to try and locate him and see if he would be willing to meet with us to look at a photo lineup. Then it's up to him whether he wants to meet with us and to look at the photo lineup. It's my personal belief, granted it's just my personal belief, that if I could have gotten in touch with him, he would have done that. Because that night, I mean, yeah, he doesn't want to talk to the cops, but he's, he's the only one that says he thinks he might be able to identify someone. If, if he didn't want to say that, he wouldn't have said it. He wanted to say it because he did. And I truly believe if I could have found him and gotten with him, I'd have shown him a photo lineup. But that never happened. And the quote people we thought would be helpful in that, death row records, weren't that helpful. Can you say who was in the photo lineup? Oh. Uh... What was his name? Well, I do know his name. I don't know that I want to throw his name out there, though, because... Would it have been the person you again, were trying to get the pin? That, that's who we were looking at, yes. All right. So if you can dig that up, then I guess you'll have the name, and then you can do what you want with it. I'm not going to be the one to throw his name out into the world, because... Actually, I have found his name, but... I okay. also yeah. concur that enough, there, it's not necessary if he was never arrested. There's enough, there's enough people that are acting crazy in this thing. I would hope, you know, you throw his name out. I would feel bad if something happened to him because 
some nut job listens to this. No, I don't. I don't really see the necessity of doing it since he's yeah, never been he arrested. Has, he, he wasn't identified. To this day, I, I have questions about it, but unfortunately, Yafu Fulu was the only one that would have been able to tell us that. And he so. passed away just barely, just just two months after Tupac Shakur was killed. Okay, so I, I don't remember the day, but it's November pretty, 10th. I remember. It was before it was before the end of the year, November I know. November 10th. It was it was pretty quick. And another issue I've heard brought up is why didn't you go to New Jersey to follow up on that? How did you follow up once you heard that he'd been murdered? Why didn't we go to New Jersey because he got shot? To follow up to question? see what what happened. Because we contacted the authorities back there that investigated it. There was no reason. First of all, you hope that you can trust other law enforcement agencies as far as documents and stuff, because I know we got some reports and the information from the investigation was that it wasn't related to our incident. I think they had. I think they had a suspect on that. I can't give you a well, name. My understanding is they did. I don't know. He was. Yeah, I don't remember if he was related or something. I just remember it was. They had a person they arrested. There was nothing to indicate that it was related to our shooting. My understanding, again, from what I've seen reported, is that the person who actually did time for the shooting was related to a member of the outlaws known as Napoleon and said it was an accident. Although Yaki Gaddafi's okay. mother believes otherwise, but that's... Yeah, and that would she'd have to bring that up with those folks back there. I mean, they can be other than an accident and just because... Maybe it was other than an accident. Did you ever think it was more really... than an accident? Did you ever think seriously? The, the way I understood it, I didn't think it was. I've never heard the accident thing. I always understood it was a murder. So if it's a murder, it's not an accident. There's, that's a whole different thing. And I always understood it to be and a murder. And you didn't think it was connected so, to Tupac's murder? No. There was nothing. Was that Orange, New yes. Jersey? I don't know why orange is ringing Correct. a bell. Uh, there was nothing from their investigation that indicated that. Now let's go to Frank Alexander, who was Tupac's full-time bodyguard, who was driving the car just behind Suge Knight and Tupac that night. Got that interview with him the night, early morning of Tupac's murder. And then what? in terms of your ongoing conversations? How did that go with, with Frank Alexander? With Frank, we're talking about. Okay, I remember talking to him out there. I wanna say he gave me a little bit of history about himself because he was a former Marine. I think he worked for Orange County Sheriff's in the jail or in the detention system. Uh, he was Tupac Shakur's personal bodyguard. It wasn't, he was, Guarding everybody, he just happened to be his personal bodyguard. My understanding is Tupac, according to Frank, picked him out. Said, "That's the one I want." Yeah, and as 
later on in time, that's how everything came out. That night, I'm trying to recall specifically that night, talking to him about it. I remember asking him if anything happened preceding the shooting. Was there someone mad at him or anything like that? And it wasn't because I knew about the MGM fight on the videotape. Not the Tyson fight, but the, the, the fight on the video. Because we didn't have that at the time. I just remember, that's just normal questioning. It says, was there something that happened preceding this? Did he get in a beef with someone or anything like that? And I don't know Frank's words, but it was basically nothing happened that night. There was no fight or it was un basically uneventful. I don't know what his words were. Did he ever so admit that? He never said anything about the MG. He ne never said anything that night about the, M the fight at the MGM where Tupac in Orlando had Subsequently, did he ever admit to it? Yes. Subsequently, later on down the road, especially once he, he and Death Row parted, he said, yeah. And he had mentioned that he was trying to pull a Tupac off because, well, this is their meat and potatoes down here on the floor. And if he gets hurt. <laughs> did he explain why he lied? At that time, it wasn't that he was told to lie because he he didn't have any contact with anybody right. then. Should that have gone just, to the hospital. He's the bodyguard. He's yeah, you know, he's part of the death row group. He's not going to give up anything more than he the has to. Code. He's, you know, Frank wasn't even that night. It wasn't that he was. When I say trying to be, I think he was just trying to protect. He was a death row employee. But afterwards, when he's having issues, he admits that he should have said something then. And then he clearly, you know, admits to it. And that later on, he does admit to having some issues being told by death row to do certain things. So. Let's rewind it a little bit. Frank Alexander, Tupac's bodyguard, was at the MGM Grand. He went to the fight with Mike Tyson, the very quick fight, came out, was also right in there with Tupac Shakur trying to pull him off. Correct. And of of Orlando, well, what turned out to be Orlando Anderson. And the video, I don't see Frank getting any licks in. I think Frank's more of a bystander witness and then I think you kind of see him go in because it's hard to see anybody specifically in that dog pile. It, it sure is. Uh, I, I'll, I'll very much agree. So in Frank Alexander's explanation of it, in the middle of the beatdown, a medallion that Tupac was wearing, euthanasia, symbolizing a production company, a media company he wanted to start, a link broke off, and Frank says that's how he was able to pull Tupac away. Now, I had heard from high-up sources at Death Row Records that Orlando Anderson had tried to snatch Tupac's medallion. In Frank Alexander's book, he said that Death Row had told him to say that somebody tried to snatch Tupac's medallion. I did report on what Death Row had said, attributing attributing that to death row, what would you think would have been the motivation 
for the story to be promoted that somebody was trying to snatch Tupac's medallion? What what would how would that impact the investigation versus the the other stories that emerged that the medallion a similar one had been snatched earlier at an in California previously. Well, impacted. Uh, there's no there, the there's no impact. It's not a benefit. I says okay. I guess the only benefit to them would be if they're saying that that's the reason Tupac attacked Orlando because this guy snatched his medallion. But the way I understood it, and the way Frank presented it later on was that maybe something was said in Tupac's ear by someone and that Tupac took off after the dude, Orlando Anderson, and went after him. There was nothing about the yanking of a chain starting the fight one or that there was a yanking of a chain off his neck during the fight. Yes, and... and backing it up that's the story that seems to have endured that somebody whispered in Tupac's ear that dude was yanking my chain and took it you hear some versions that he tried to take it but that's the version that Tupac heard that and then directly went to uh to and that down. would be the deal is it Lakewood Mall there's a mall in California Correct. where all this I did a stand yeah, up. Supposedly happened there. there. Now it, it depends on who you believe, because since you've presented some things, I think Reggie Wright Jr. doesn't buy into that. He thinks that story is probably a little exaggerated if I remember part one of his interviews. He said that at least one thing one version that I've heard is that there was an attempt to take the medallion, but it was not Correct. taken. I've seen other interviews that seem to throw suspicion on it. And I will say 25 years later, I wonder about the story because also associated with that story is that there had been a bounty put on death row necklaces, possibly by Bad Boy Records, Sean Puffy Combs. You could get $10,000 for every chain you snatched. How logical or how possible does that seem that 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 scenario it doesn't make sense and i'm sure people will be critical of it my point is people could say whatever they want where is the bread and butter saying proving that this is in fact what was going on, what caused it, or anything like that. I the said, chain snatching yeah, at Lakewood, the chain snatching. The, what yeah, you, which, the, what the, you... the the mall, the mall incident, and the the thing about the necklace at the MGM. I mean, there wasn't anything on the video to indicate people were picking up pieces of necklace or anything there. I mean, the video is the dude. You get Tupac going in, and then. The herd of buffalo coming in behind there, jumping on him and kicking the dude and all that. And Frank pulling Tupac away, basically. And then eventually people leave, you know. But it's not all clear because you do have an obstruction in that video. That's what I was going to say. It's hard to see everything. Yeah, there's. you're only seeing bits and pieces of it. And there's if so many people. Bit, 
Yeah, and if that fake tree or whatever that was was not there, if that was just a big open room, that camera would have probably caught the whole thing and you could have seen a lot more. But because it was obstructed, you're only getting portions of it. So now we're having people, and when I say people that are affiliated to death row, that probably are there during the fight, putting in their two cents. And guess what? Those stories aren't all consistent. So which one do you believe? Because the video isn't <laughs> the video isn't helping in that regards. I, you know, twenty five years later, I'm not sure I believe any of it in terms of the medallion. I, so I just think in my mind, what really was behind it was there an intentional provocation because people knew that Tupac was a hothead, and I'm saying that his friend said that, that he was emotional, that it was sort of intentionally said to him. I, 25 years later, I su I'm suspect of the whole story. Well, from what I know from talking to the different people, one, Tupac, if Tupac were alone that t at that time, which you know wouldn't have happened because that's just the way it was, but if he happened, for some reason, Tupac occurs just loping around in the casino by himself, I don't think he'd have gone running after Orlando Anderson, period, end of story. Everything that I've heard is that if Tupac got into the shit, so to speak, as far as like this, there were other people around, which mean, to me, you know, you're always going to feel a little braver when you got five or ten buddies around that are going to back you up. I'm not saying he's a coward. I'm just saying that that is how it was portrayed. That yes, he was a rapper, the thug life. I heard he was a bold, they, bold one though. I heard stories well, yeah. from way back from Shock G, who produced some of his records, and he started with Shock G's group Digital Underground. And some of the stories that he says about Tupac. He was pretty brash, and he would step to anybody, and that was just who he was. Because I also was wondering how much of his persona was PR and how much of it was real. And according to a number of interviews with people who knew him back in the day, he was brash and he didn't shy away from a beatdown, whether he was with someone or not. Okay, so there is evidence that he used to get involved in beatdowns alone. Someone says they were there to see this, or yeah. are they just passing on? I, that's where I'm getting, I'm going with this. Again, we've got someone saying something, and, and maybe they're right. I'm just asking the question. They're saying on the, that, on the roads, they would see things yeah. where he would go to a bar and brawl it okay. up and they're like don't bring that to the hotel you know yeah and that that may very well be but the event that happened at the mgm there was just he was not alone he wasn't just with one guy he had suge knight and all frank you, alexander you saw the, you've you've seen the videotape all right now, how many of those people were the original entourage? 
most of them in the beatdown are probably with the entourage. And then the video of them going through the casino, well, a lot of that crowd kind of clung to the flypaper on their way out the door. So we're going to get to somebody else from death row who was not there, who I've seen him say that he was waiting at the club 662, and that's Reggie Wright Jr., who was the head of Rightway Security. And I, my understanding, there were two tiers of security, one kind of from the neighborhood and Reggie, who would often get off-duty or former people in law enforcement. Yeah, I've heard that, yes. In fact, now, that was something came out quite early. So, oh, Do you want to tell me oh, well, quite early about it, it who was, he it wasn't hired? The, yeah, it wasn't that it was Las Vegas police. Now, Las Vegas police were at the Club 6-2, but that was through the department that Reggie Wright Jr. arranged that. 6-6-2. Now, as far as personal bodyguards, say at the Club 6-6-2 or stuff, they had to get sheriff's cards. There was, I don't know what the procedure is today, but to work in a casino, gaming, liquor, anything, security, you had to get a sheriff's card. And they'd take your picture, your fingerprints, they'd do all this background check and stuff. And that was done by individuals. You didn't use you didn't just do a carte blanche thing, you know. So I know that they had people at Club 662, because we had names and stuff in our case file from that. And some of those people that I remember were affiliated with law enforcement in the California area. Now, as far as Frank, Frank Alexander being the bodyguard, I think he had a sheriff's card in Las Vegas. I just don't remember. But I also know, I think he had something in the state of California. And, well, since you bring Frank Alexander up, you're reminding me that at one point, Frank Alexander said that he was told, or it was communicated maybe initially to you, that Frank Alexander's memory had been jogged. He had more information to give you at some point. Yeah, I remember something coming up. And was, uh, was that Reggie Jr.? Uh, I don't remember if or was it David Kenner. David I, Kenner in that. No, okay. I'm separating. Yes, going Yeah, it going may have been. It was one or the other because most of the conversation related to death row would have been between David with David Kenner or Reggie Jr. Right. Because Suge Knight didn't. One time we talked to him, at least the big interview. So, yeah, I remember that. And I thought, oh, well, what's behind this now? Because, you know, and it, it came out later on when Frank parted with death row. He was more forthcoming about things, about how he was guided on what to say or what to do. And, and it was... During one of those interviews, he told me about the meeting with Reggie Jr. and Suge Knight by the swimming pool at Suge's house in Las Vegas. And that would have been preceding that the night of the fight, where he was told not to carry his firearm with him. Frank, and, Frank said that. Right. And Reggie has said, well, at one point, Frank said he was told not to carry his firearm. And in his book, which... I've read, and it is true, 
Frank says the reason he didn't have his firearm is because Suge had said, go in this car. It was a, the car of Kadada Jones, Quincy Jones's daughter, Tupac's girlfriend or fiance, depending on which source you read. And because there, suddenly he was not going to be riding in his car, he didn't want to say, oh, I got to go get my gun. That's the reason he didn't have a weapon. And I don't remember him telling me that story. Uh, the point is, he didn't have a gun because right. I'd almost, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I wouldn't have been surprised that if he'd have had a gun that night and he'd have been able to react, he probably would have thrown some shots at whoever shot Tupac's car, maybe. I, I will say that in some of the information I've gone through, it seems like he goes back and forth and saying, who would I have shot? It was a busy street. Right. You know, really, what could well, I do if I did have a gun? And if he did it, if he thought of it from his law enforcement training, he probably wouldn't have shot because I can't say what was there because I wasn't there just from the witnesses' description and stuff. Other than the entourage, there were other cars in the area. And people. All right. This is this is Saturday night in Las Vegas, and fight it's night. fight night. And you're less than a block off the strip, and Flamingo is a very well-traveled, busy street. So we're just talking about the traffic heading eastbound. Don't forget the westbound traffic, maybe the people at Koval waiting to turn left or right or do whatever, because that's a good junction to come in. If you know Las Vegas, Koval is a good street to kind of do your loop around to go back and do stuff because you're off the strip. Because the Las Vegas strip is going to be cars bumper to bumper. So, yeah, if Frank using his law enforcement training, it would have been wise not to fire because you don't know what you're going to hit. So, I don't know. It would have depended on what he saw at the time. Yeah, he seems to go back and forth, being guilty that he didn't have a gun to well, say, he, this is what I... He definitely felt guilty. I can tell you that from my conversations with him. He felt guilty about Tupac getting shot. It and was quite evident. The other thing that he mentions is being contacted by death row and the implication being that they know what he said to you all. He knows somehow Destro has access to his statements. Would that have happened? If Row had the statement, in specific his interview the night of the shooting, There's only two places that that could have come from. That would have been from us, which I can tell you I didn't tell Death Row, or Compton PD because they got to review some stuff. And I don't, I can't speak for Compton PD. Do I think Tim Brennan would have said anything being from Compton PD? No. So now, you were we sharing learn, records. At the, well, that we, time we, when you were talking to early on in the investigation? Remember when uh, Tim Brennan and some sheriff's deputies came over to view the video, and Tim Brennan's the one that identified Orlando Anderson. September 16th, and we're going to get more we, into that. 
three yeah, days we after. Shared, we shared information with them and the, the statements would have been something we shared. I don't remember if we made copies for them, but they would have had the gist of the story. I just don't remember what they had. Okay. And then they would have, because some of that information they'd have had to use for their affidavit for their search warrant. Which we're going to get into in the next episode, mm -hmm. really going into Orlando Anderson. But you're saying that you're not putting out Compton PD as passing this information along, but the only no. other place that your police records would have gone through would have just been another police agency. Yeah. And because there was two LA deputies there, I mean, I, I don't see any of those people passing on information. To sheriff's deputies. Two sheriff's yeah, deputies. LA, LA County Sheriff's deputies. Uh, and Compton I, There's TV. no way I see either of those three guys passing information to death row. I just, it, I don't know them really, really well, but from what I gathered, you know, these were good guys. They were, had a job to do. I just don't see them passing on that information. Did you ever hear from Frank Alexander his concerns that what he was telling you was ending up in the hands of death row? Yes. That came later on, and I want to say... It would have been after the search warrants in Compton because, you know, I don't remember the specific date that Frank and Death Row kind of parted ways, but it wasn't immediate. I think Frank was feeling bad because I think he was probably catching some heat from different people. In fact, I remember during Suge Knight's interview, he wasn't being nice in his talking about Frank, the, the security detail. So it, I think any in-depth conversation I had with Frank after him and death row party would have been after the search warrant. And yeah, he, death row was getting information, obviously. Now, whether Frank was telling them or not, that's only Frank can tell you. But if he's saying it wasn't something he told them and it was coming out of police reports, then I don't know how it would have come out of our report because we, like I said, we were locking it up at night. Because in his book, Frank Alexander says that he was getting calls from death row saying that he had named names. Well, and I think the only names that they could be talking about was Reggie Jr. and Suge Knight in the swimming pool conversation. Because I don't know what other names did he give because he didn't identify anybody. In terms of the shooter or yeah, who, the if, occupants if, of the car. Because the I gathered that most of his conversations would have been with Reggie Jr., I know that he had a conversation at some point with David Kenner, but I think most of us, because guess what? In the pecking order, you're going to talk to Reggie Jr. instead of the lawyer. 
there was an article in the Los Angeles Times saying that there were witnesses who wanted to speak to you. They wanted to ID the killer, but this article frames it that the Las Vegas police had not followed up. Did they name those witnesses? Malcolm was one of them. And I'm believing that these are the witnesses that Reggie Wright Jr. subsequently said that he brought to you in Compton, to Compton PD. Reggie Wright's a former Compton police officer. His father, a lieutenant, was Compton police. And I met them both. I believe I met Reggie Wright Sr. while doing a story about the murder of two policemen with Compton PD. So what's the story? You didn't? Reggie said you were rude to these witnesses. So what well, gives? My, my answer to Reggie is, <laughs> yeah, I believe Reggie's the one that arranged the meeting with Malcolm. But I Idiot can tell me. you... Yeah, but I can tell you that that meeting wasn't initiated by him. Malcolm was being quoted in some newspaper articles about LA something. Times. Yeah, about knowing something, and we hadn't showed him any photos or anything like that. And I remember that, again, it was either me or Kevin, someone we're calling says, well, Malcolm says all this, we want to meet with him. I know Reggie Jr. was then part of it, and they didn't want to bring Malcolm to Las Vegas. They said, we had to go to Compton PD. That was, that was part of the deal. We had to go to Compton. So we packed up our stuff, and we went to Compton, and we had multiple photo lineups in tow with us. Not a photo lineup. We had several. And we went to Compton PD, and I remember Reggie Jr. brought Malcolm in, and we sat down with Malcolm. And Malcolm, when we asked him about it, said he didn't know. It would be in the report. I'm just paraphrasing as best I can recall. It was something about... he. Basically, didn't know why he was there. He had nothing to add, and he didn't want to look at any photo lineup. Did he clam and that up? Was bef- and that was before anybody got upset about anything. That's when we first got in there. We said, we're here. You've been saying things in the newspaper, and well, now's your time. We would like you to tell us what you know, since it's apparently different from what you told the night of the shooting. And then we had some photo lineups to look at, and he just said his story didn't change, and he wasn't going to look at the photo lineup. So if you want to call it clamming up, he clammed up. Was there something that precipitated that? Were no, you no. not polite the only to thing him? That precipitate, no, the only thing that precipitated that was we wanted to show him this stuff because he was continually saying in the news that he knew something. It was after he clammed up or refused to do anything. Yeah, we were a little upset by then. We just came all the way to Compton with all this, thinking we got someone that's going to tell us something, and he's not telling us anything. Yeah, we might have got upset then. but Upset that wasn't how? That, that 
he's basically wasting our time is what he's doing. We've just gone however many miles it is from Las Vegas to Compton because Reggie Jr. wanted us to come there. And the gist of what I got out of the whole thing, too, is one, Malcolm didn't have anything to say. I think Malcolm was there at behest of Reggie Jr. Now, I don't know. I have nothing to confirm this because Malcolm didn't say anything. I don't know if he was coached. I don't know if he was directed. But as the investigation went on, we learned that it isn't beyond them to do that because they did it with Frank. So, bottom line, were you rude to them? I would say when it was all said and done, we probably voiced our displeasure with him. If you want to call that rude, then I guess we're rude. But if we, you mean, did we call him names or anything like that? No. Anything that indicated we were upset would have been after he basically said he wasn't going to say anything. Okay. And... Anything else about Reggie Wright Jr. and any other interactions you had with him? The only interactions I had with Reggie Jr. is I thought Reggie was in it for himself. And he was death row's mouthpiece. That was it. And that this Malcolm thing, again, I can't prove it. That's just a feeling I got. So Did you have Reggie'd a- be Reggie would be the only one to confirm that, and I really don't think Reggie's going to be too truthful about anything anyhow. So so you question his veracity? Oh, like Reggie Jr.? Absolutely. Especially through the course of this investigation. I mean, if you listen to Reggie Jr., he was peaches and cream, and he was all here to do all this, but I don't get that. And if you look at listen to phone conversations that Frank apparently recorded with him and Reggie and all. No. There have been other quarters of folks in law enforcement who have found him to be very helpful. Maybe it was your well, approach. Well, and that's their business. I'm not I'm not gonna, I'm not going to dispute them. I'm uh, my question would be what it was in it for whoever. Okay. And I don't know what agency it is, but I just know that part of the issue was you got Reggie Jr., the head of Death Row Records, the son of the gang lieutenant at Compton PD. And just finally, how deep we talked about hit him up and who shot you. When you're going into the investigation, how deep do you go into Biggie as being a possible suspect biggie and p diddy did you take it seriously we heard it we looked into it as best we could there was absolutely nothing but again rumors that they may have been involved uh one of the strange phone calls i took was a guy and it was obvious to me at the time that he was on a payphone because all the sounds the street sounds and stuff in because uh, claiming to be in New York City, which who knows, maybe he was on the Las Vegas Strip. I don't know. He's claiming to be because remember, we didn't have caller ID. This wasn't on a cell phone or anything. And uh, the olden days. Yeah, and he claimed to be P. Diddy or Sean Combs or whoever you want to call him by. 
but the guy didn't talk like he was an intelligent person. All right. Everything I've ever seen of Sean Combs or P. Diddy or whatever, the guy can carry himself okay. He doesn't he doesn't talk. He talks better than me because I know I'm not a good talker. All right. But he he presented himself well. This guy did not. And uh his he said he he was confessing to having Tupac killed. That's what he was doing, basically. And why would Sean Puffy Combs call the police and confess if he did it? Why would he call and do that? That just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So follow up on that tip was? That was it, because there was no, you know, it was one of many weird phone calls, so. Any other weird ones you want to bring to the fore? Tony Spilatro? Well, yeah, Tony Spilatro, his ghost supposedly did it. You got to figure Tony was killed in what? Somewhere 85 to 87 period, I think, is when he got killed. This is in 90, so 10 years later. So, yeah, the, the ghost of Tony Spilatro did it. And I thought, okay, well, there's another doozy. So which is a bigger doozy, that you did it or Tony Spilatro's ghost? Well, the bigger doozy is I did it, because I can speak the fact for sure about that. But, yeah, the ghost is a pretty good doozy, too. So, <laughs> Okay, anything else you want to say about the investigation? How you felt at the end of 2001 when you left? Well, you know, by the end of 2001, I'm not knowing about a lot of this other behind-the-scenes bantering. You know, I, I, I know that there was some negative comments coming out of Compton that we weren't taking their information and, and, and arresting gonna, someone. We're going to get into that because our next okay. episode is Orlando Anderson, but anything else? I can remember... During our investigation, you know, it would have been the trips to California. One of those trips is when we learned about them wanting to do the revocation on Suge Knight. Right. Based and on they the were video. Going, they, they, well, no. Originally, they were going to try to revoke him based on a dirty piss test for marijuana. And Mike and I both laughed. Mike probably laughed more because Mike used to work narcotics, and we just thought, you're actually going to revoke some California of all places is going to revoke somebody for pissing dirty for marijuana. But that's what they said. And that's when I brought up that we had the videotape and that's where they ran with it. You know, they ran with the videotape that was really, I didn't have to say anything. You just watch the videotape and it shows Suge Knight kicking the guy. So that was what they ran with. I've even seen Suge's, ex-wife, I believe ex, Sharisa saying that that was piddly to get him on. Well, the beat that's, that's her business and that's California's business. I just provided the information. I didn't tell them to do it. Uh, I remember being in the California district, the LA County district attorney's office, and we dealt with some investigators there because they were doing whatever they have to do. 
And I remember them mentioning an LAPD captain talking trash about us. I don't remember all the specifics, but he wasn't one of our uh, cheerleaders as far as the investigation. I seem to remember the name. I don't want to throw it out. But, but specifically, what was the criticism? I think it was just the criticism about not getting the guy or arresting someone or something like that. And I thought, well, he's an LAPD captain, so he doesn't mean a lot to me because, one, he's an administrator. Uh, is that a, a... Is that a dig? I guess it's a dig because I'm thinking... I'm pretty sure this LAPD captain had his head up his butt somewhere else and had nothing to do with the investigation. And it was before, well, no. Yeah, it would have been before Biggie, so they weren't even involved in that yet. And then I remember one time we were down there because we dealt with the FBI and ATF down there. I forget what we were gathering. Again, there'd be documents on it, but... I remember there was a point that we had gotten wind that Keefe D was in federal custody. And so, Keefe D, again, I, is the uncle of Orlando Anderson. Correct, correct. Dwayne Davis, I think, is his real name. And why was that significant uh, to you? Well, we knew he was Orlando Anderson's uncle, and his name has come up. Well, it's come up. It came up through Compton. And uh, this would have been after the search warrant. So there was all kinds of stuff coming up. So, and we'd had other stories about Keefe D, so we thought, well, let's see if we can go talk to him. Well, I don't know what the facility, there's a federal correctional facility in Los Angeles. I don't call it the Metro, Metropolitan Correction Center. Center or something. It, it's a federal facility, but we were told we were not going to be allowed to go in and talk to him. Well, you wanted to. We wanted to, but they said we couldn't, so. Is that, again, a function of the feds being involved? Or well, Keefe D didn't want it, to. No, but, but would it would have to do no, with the federal it, it investigation. No, it wasn't Keefe D saying that. It was the federal correctional facility saying that. It wasn't. I'm not saying the FBI said that. I'm not saying ATF because there was nothing that said that. It was the contact at the federal correctional facility said we couldn't talk to him. Okay, because of an existing investigation, I'm imagining. I. There was no details about that. We were just told we aren't going to be able to talk to him. Gotcha. They didn't go into any details about anything. And just quickly as we wrap this up, let's go over Suge Knight. Did you want to talk to him again after that initial oh, interview? I'm, I know that we attempted to, but like anything where you try to get to someone through death row, it's not always that easy. And you couldn't have... Again, I'll use the word compelled him to talk to you again. You know, this this whole compelling people, I'm not quite sure what people mean by that. I'm saying uh, it because no, I, I've I, seen I know, a lot of uh, reporting saying the police didn't force Shug to come in and they didn't force Yaki Gaddafi, Yapu Fula so to come back me, in. Tell me what for, no, I'm just asking the question because I don't understand what they're saying unless they're telling us to go handcuff them and drag them in. Is that forcing them? Well, Somehow what, is our, what, what, what is our basis for doing that? Does the media compel or force someone to talk to them? 
but the media. I think I've seen a lot. I see a lot of people getting the door slammed in their face. Well, but, I've had but doors slammed. In my, yeah, but you're I've had doors. No, no. If I don't have any legal right to force, well, first of all, you you can't force anybody to say anything. How do you do that? Unless we're going back to the old West days when you could frappe somebody and beat them until they talk. Well, I've never done that in my career. All right. I guess that would be forcing or compelling someone to talk, beat them into submission. But that isn't what we do. We didn't then, and I never did. So that would be my question to all these people that have all these great answers. Gotcha. And considering it's coming from a newspaper person, I'll take that with a grain of salt. So I just said sources. Nothing say. against you. I'm just saying that's that's not a surprise coming from an entertainment organization. So, and you consider newspapers to be entertainment organizations? Certainly, it is. It's all about sensationalism. Don't they pay to read your newspapers if you're working for... Do you pay to get a newspaper to read it? Yes. All right. So you're being pay, you're being paid to provide entertainment for people to read. Well, <laughs> but there's... That's how I look at it. Apparently. But there... I mean, again, I went to school. I majored in journalism. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you. I'm just talking about other people that I've seen. If you look at the story, now there's some people that do some good writing, but I think the day of the investigative journalist is probably weak at best. I mean, today it's more tabloid news in my mind. News is supposed to be something new, not something a week old, unless it's something new about something that happened a week ago. Or so. 20 or 25 years ago. Yeah, if it's something new. Otherwise, it's old news. <laughs> well, old news is what we're going to talk about next. Orlando Anderson. 25 years after the murder of Tupac Shakur, no arrests have been made. If you have any questions you'd like to ask retired Las Vegas Metro detective Brent Becker about Tupac's murder, you have a few ways to reach out, and thanks to all of you who already have. Use the hashtag TupacMurderPodcast on Twitter or Instagram, or go to my website, TupacMurderPodcast.com. You can type out your question, record audio or video, and send it in, and we'll get to as many of your questions as possible. But then again, you may have answers to what actually happened 25 years ago. Send me a private message via TupacMurder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com. I'm Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case, was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lennon Ozizwe. That's me. I also created the artwork and music. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. Special thanks to Joe Mayer, 
and Annabelle Vidrio. You've been listening to Lennon Ozizue reporting Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Coming up next on Tupac's murder was his case. I just say two large law enforcement agencies, and they told us we should be careful in Compton. They didn't go into specifics. They just said that there was, they've had some issues with Compton. They didn't specifically say Tim Brennan. It was just the law enforcement, the agency itself, and there were some questions about the agency. Did they say specifically what? Issues they were they just talking about? they said there were some issues about officers may not being on the up and up on everything that's kind of <laughs> interpret not being it, on the yeah. up and up interpret that any way you want. I just know that we said, okay, so I know that when we got there, Mike and I weren't real thrilled about it after getting that information. You've been listening to Lennon Azizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. An Azizwe T original. All rights reserved. Three, two, one.